We are in our uh, fifth and sadly, at least for me, final week of remembering and celebrating the Protestant Reformation. But it is not just a historical movement called the Reformation. If we have only seen this as a study of Middle Ages European church history, then we have missed the point. We have been remembering and celebrating the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very gospel that saved us. As you know, we have been reviewing the biblical and theological commitments of the Reformers, which can be summed up in the five solas, namely sola scriptura, sola uh, solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, and sola Deo Gloria, that is translated Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and then this morning, the glory of God alone. Some of you are going to think that the only reason I did this five weeks is to get to this one. Maybe. You should understand that the glory of God of necessity follows the other four solas. That is, Because the other four are true, therefore, all glory redounds to God alone. If, in fact, the other four solas are not true, then all glory does not redound to God alone. The church or or Mary or, or the saints or the priests or I get some of the credit and therefore some of the glory. This, this was the point of the Reformers. The, the five solas, John Piper says, preciously clarify the crux of the Reformation and the heart of the gospel. Let me remind you that the central issue of the Protestant Reformation around which these five solas orbit was the doctrine of justification. That is, what makes a person right before God? Because see, we have a problem. Scripture is clear that all of humanity is in sinful rebellion. Humanity is not right before God. Therefore, the question of eternal significance is, what makes a person right before God? That is to avert His deserved righteous wrath, rightly poised against us, His anger. He is against us. What makes him for us? Well, the church had developed an entire sacramental system by which people cooperate with grace to contribute to their own justification, by which system they, they, they miss it altogether. You see, in that system, frankly, in the end, I have God, the church, and, well, me uh, to, to thank and glorify for my justification. The Reformers, in fact, the Bible says no. To illustrate the centrality of justification, these five solas are actually in Latin prepositional phrases which means they must be attached to something. If I may give, I've been doing history, I might as well just go ahead and venture out and give a simple lesson in grammar. If I say, I ran on the greenway, on the greenway is the prepositional phrase which tells you where I ran. I may be lying about that, but it tells you where I presumably ran. If I, 
If I, say, if I just walk up to you one day and say, on the greenway, <laughs> that is meaningless, or at least it is not precise. I could be referring to seeing you on the greenway or walking my dog on the greenway, riding my bike on the greenway, which no one should do except kids, tripping on the greenway, getting caught in the rain on the greenway. You see, actually, the possibilities are endless. It's not very precise. So also, the five solas are attached to something, and they are attached to the doctrine of justification. So, we say justification is, or I am justified by the free gift of God's unmerited grace alone with no favor or works of my own whatsoever, through faith alone, faith is the only means by which I am united with God's grace in Christ, on the basis of the finished and all-sufficient sacrificial atoning work of Christ alone, as declared finally and decisively with authority in Scripture alone, resulting in all glory to God alone. That's the idea. And that is why justification is the central issue of the Reformation, and why these five solas re- revolve around this truth. The, they are five phrases that tell us how God justifies the unjust, the ungodly. So, this has been more than just a glance at Middle Ages history. This has been, I trust, a glorious reminder of the gospel. In fact, I will go two steps further. First, if you have been confronted by the gospel, that is, you realize that you have been trying to make God like you, notice you, accept you, by what you do, even if they are good things, like that's why you show up here on Sunday mornings, Or that's why you have your quiet times and read and and pray or whatever it is that you do, fill in the blank. You do those to get God's attention. You must come to the end of your pitiful resources and receive God's unmerited favor through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. Second, if you talk to someone who says, well, as is want to happen today, the Reformation was unnecessary or a needless division or distraction or, or un, un, unfortunate rebellion. Or if they say something like, we need to reunite with the church, you now know, I trust, that the issue is tied to justification. So, for example, when I say, as I did, when I began this series five weeks ago, a group of people got together in 1994 to author the Act Accord, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, you know they ultimately and frankly did not get it. You, you'll remember that they put the doctrine of justification in the back, in an appendix, uh, in an appendix suggesting that they, hey, we still don't agree on the nature of justification, which means they don't understand the central issue. They wanted, if I could say it this way, to detach the solas from their orbit and make them meaningless prepositional phrases just kind of hanging out there. They just want to walk up to you and say, in grace alone, well, yeah, okay, I'm good with that. 
Just walk up to you and say, in faith alone, well, yeah, I'm, who doesn't believe in faith? Or in Christ, I like Christ. To glory, to God alone, well, yeah, I like God. But as those truths are rightly tied to justification, I'll say this gently but clearly, we do not agree because we have redefined the terms. And I would suggest further that by detaching the solas from this central truth, we make justification a secondary issue, and we cannot, we must not do that. It is of eternal significance. The reason for the Reformation was this most fundamental of Christian doctrines. And the only way that we can unite is if we agree on this essential, central, orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, I want to be clear. As the first four solas orbit justification, so also does the fifth sola deo gloria, meaning... The truth of the first four solas result in the glory of God alone. How is this so? And how is it that by denying the truth of the first four solas, we diminish, as if that were possible, the very glory of God? So, what I'm suggesting to you today. How is it that in their unbiblical sacramental system, of earned grace, the Catholic Church, or anybody else who thinks that we can get there by what I bring to the table, attempt to become recipients of undeserved glory. How is this so? We've seen this over the past few weeks, but they are truths of eternal and unparalleled importance. We must understand that all humanity lives in sinful rebellion against the holy God, and we are therefore, get this, spiritually dead and eternally culpable. And to be spiritually dead means that there is nothing that we can do about our spiritual condition. It is not as if we can do anything to make ourselves right before God because even our best actions are tainted by sin as filthy rags before God. So, there is to be, there can be no cooperation. Even if we make the actions seemingly spiritual, like baptism, or penance, or the Mass, or Eucharist, or good works, or works of satisfaction, or whatever good works that we're hanging on to to make ourselves acceptable to God as if we can merit His grace or His favor. Even if I feel really sorry, that is, I'm contrite, and I confess my sin and do those works of satisfaction, no works, no matter how many nor how great, can possibly atone for my sin. That work belongs to Christ in Christ alone. We are dead, and our need is not self-improvement. Our need is not even acts of righteousness. We are dead, which means we need resurrection. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved unless God makes us alive by His Holy Spirit in regeneration and justifies us by a free act of His grace through faith. We are pitifully hopeless and helpless. But that is exactly what God does every time He justifies ungodly sinners. He breathes spiritual life into them and saves them by His unmerited grace through faith in the all sufficient, finished, sacrificial work of Christ alone. Christ then becomes the all-wrath-removing sacrifice and the all-justifying righteousness of our salvation alone. And by adding works in any nature, we diminish Christ's work and God's glory. Now, we must also remember, just because grace is free to us does not mean it is cheap or it was free to God. He did not just declare us righteous on a whim or as the result of some divine sentiment whereby he felt sorry for us. It cost God the enormously, indeed infinitely great price of the blood of His own Son. Why? Why? Was there not some other way for God to redeem humanity? And the answer to that question is ultimately sola deo gloria. And if you diminish any of those other four solas, then you diminish sola, deo gloria. You diminish the very purpose of the universe. God used the most glorious means of redeeming his lost, disobedient, rebellious children. This is a display of most glorious grace. This tension that exists between God's love for His own glory, which we're going to talk about in a moment, His love for His own glory and His love for ungodly, unrighteous people who have profaned His glory, those two tensions, I mean that tension is is reconciled at the cross. God's justice and mercy meet at the cross of Christ. And as a result, since it is all of God and none of us, because we were incapable, all glory redounds to Him. I want to say this very gently. If there's just something in you that rises up against that, I want to suggest that something is sin. That's our problem. Martin Luther and the other reformers understood this truth. Luther, for example, 
was a voracious writer. His works are said to title over, uh, uh, or his works were to total over 600 titles. We have hundreds of his sermons, his commentaries on the Bible, his catechisms, which were both long and short, letters he wrote, his so-called table talk, when his students wrote down what he said after dinner, when by all rights he was probably a bit inebriated, and not forgetting his numerous political and polemical works by which he took, took the church to task seeking to correct false teaching. It took him years to write all that he wrote. I would suggest it would take years to read. But Luther says, of all of his writings and works, you could throw all of them away, save two. In in fact, he heard that someone was thinking of publishing all of his works and collected volumes because it would take volumes. And so Luther wrote this guy a letter saying, Regarding the plan to collect my writings in volumes, I am quite cool and not at all eager about it. I'm, I'm cold toward the idea because I would rather see them all devoured, for I acknowledge none of them to be really a book of mine except perhaps the one on the bondage of the will oh, and the catechisms. In his own estimation, his most important works included those catechisms and on the bondage of the will that he wrote in 1525. He was writing in response to Erasmus of Rotterdam. You may have heard of him. He's the the guy who gathered together and edited a Greek New Testament and actually published it, interestingly, in the year 1516. I cannot stress to you how important that work was. Everything else that we had up to that point, I mean, there were fragments of, uh, of, Greek, of the Greek New Testament, but everything that was largely used was the, the Latin Vulgate. And so translations made of the New Testament were twice removed. And so, so, so Erasmus... He he puts this together and and publishes it. And Luther used the Greek text to translate the New Testament into German in in 1521. And John Tyndale used it to translate it into English, which, by the way, cost Tyndale his life. They hunted him down and killed him for translating the Bible into the language that you have in your lap. But while Erasmus did much good... He did not join the Reformation. He stayed within the ranks of the Catholic Church. There were lots of reasons for that, but he eventually wrote a work entitled On the Freedom of the Will, and he wrote that in 1524, the year before. Why was this important to him as a Catholic? Because it's important. He believed a man not entirely dead in trespasses and sin, that he had the ability through the freedom of the will to make the first step toward God in faith and to cooperate with grace to earn salvation. He argued that baptism, repentance, and conversion were possible because of the freedom of the will to choose good. And I want to tell you that that is being taught in churches across our country today, this morning, right now. You've got the ability. You're not dead. You've got the ability to choose Christ. Luther wrote in response, arguing that the human will 
in his work that he considered to be of utmost importance because he considered this foundational to the whole problem, argued that the human will is incapacitated by sin, unable to choose the good. Therefore, it takes the sovereign work of God to justify the ungodly dead sinner. In other words, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as declared in Scripture alone, to God be the glory alone. This is how the five solas are tied together and revolve around the doctrine of justification without realizing it. We've jettisoned some of those solas, and we say, I don't actually believe that it's by grace alone. The Protestant Reformation was a controversy with the Roman church as to exactly how helpless we are to raise ourselves from the dead and be justified. You can't. Now, I, I do want to take a moment and answer a, cu- a couple of questions, actually three eventually, regarding this idea of the glory of God alone. Some have leveled criticism against its saying, but does not this idea demean humanity? I mean, if it is all of God and none of us, th- doesn't it make much of God and, well, nothing of us, I'm going to try to remain calm. But the answer is actually yes and no. (laughs) Yes, it does make much of God. In fact, that was His design as the all-glorious God of the universe, his plan has always been to make much, indeed, most of himself. He must, you say. But doesn't that make God an egomaniac? And the answer is, yes, he must be as the most glorious being in the universe. For him to be, not to be most concerned about his own glory would be an act of idolatry. He is most glorious, and therefore, he must make the most of himself and his glory. And I might add, and it's for your good. By the way, I should define glory, I suppose. Jonathan Edwards defined it as the effulgence of his being. John Piper says it is the outward radiance of his intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Doesn't that sound like... John Piper, I simply say it is the display of his infinite and altogether beautiful attributes. Please notice how I have put Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, and Scott Andrews on the same screen. Thank you very much. Since God is most glorious... He makes most of his own glory. This is the problem of humanity. Our problem is we want to make much of us. That's why we ask the question. We want to make ourselves the center of our own little universes. 
kind of colliding against each other. And that is the ultimate act of rebellion, blasphemy, and idolatry. In fact, it was the problem in the garden. Has God really said? He doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that the day that you eat, you will be like him. Exactly, that's what I want. Give me the fruit. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your loving kindness, your faithful love, and because of your truth. It's all yours. God alone deserves all the glory. Now, uh, I, I said in answering that first question, doesn't this make much of God and nothing of us? I said yes and no. I said no because he makes much of us in God loving, altogether unlovable people. It doesn't demean humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and, and sent his son to be the propitiation. Remember that word, the, the wrath-averting sacrifice. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. He loved us, and thereby, thereby in his love toward us unlovable creatures, he made much of us by giving his own son. That's incredible. Undeserved. But, but that leads to the second important question. But, 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 wait, but wait a minute. Don't we give God glory? Isn't that what we're here to do? And, and the answer now is no <laughs> and yes. No, while created in the image of God, in our rebellion, humanity does not bring God glory in any way, ex well, except perhaps in their righteous judgment, condemnation, and wrath. That's hard. But God is glorified in the judgment of wicked people because it puts His wrath and His justice and His holiness on display. No, remembering the sola's orbit, the central doctrine of justification, and in our justification, we receive no glory because it is all of God. The only thing we bring to the table of justification is our dead corpses drowning in trespasses and sin, and He brings the all-sufficient work of His Son and gives us saving, undeserved grace through the blood and righteousness of His Son. So wonder he gets the glory. But the answer is also yes. We do bring him glory. How so? Having been justified, we now live lives of sanctification, that is, growing in holiness, being transformed to the image of his son. This does two things. First, as we saw last week, it proves the reality of our faith, of our justification. Remember James? Faith without works is dead. No good works means no justification. We're, you're still dead corpses. You're not doing anything. But, 
Justifying faith produces good works. Now, don't get that reversed. That's what the Catholic Church and many other world religions do. They reverse it. Good works produces justification. No, 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 no. Justification produces good works. Proves the reality of your faith and brings him glory. Second, in living sanctified lives, we we bring him glory. Now, do not think for a minute that we add to the glory of God, okay? I know we throw that term around, let's give God glory, blah, blah, blah. Don't think for a minute that you add to his glory. He is the all-glorious God of the universe, and he is most glorious with or without us. He did not create us because of some lack in himself so that we could, by our lives, I don't know, add to his glory. We do not add to his happiness. We do not add to his satisfaction. We do not add to his majesty. He would have been perfectly complete. Excuse me, he is perfectly complete if he had never created us. And by, and by the way, I'll say this gently, when people say that he created us to be in relationship with us, that may be a third or fourth reason. It's not the primary reason. The primary reason is for his own glory. By our sanctified lives, which are empowered by the Holy Spirit anyway, as those created in His image, now redeemed, we magnify His glory, we reflect His glory, we put His glory on display, and incredibly, we somehow share in it so that Paul can say things like, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Or whether you eat or you drink, whatever it is you do, do to the glory of God. So that in the end, God is glorified in our justification and also in our spirit-empowered sanctification. Are you, are, you, are you starting to get the message that, golly, this, this Christianity thing, this whole universe thing is all about God, right? Right. Brings us to a third question. What about our glorification? Scott, doesn't the Bible promise that? Yes, I will come back to that in just a moment. I need to speed up. Lest I turn five weeks into six. Because we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in other words, through God's work alone, all glory redounds to God alone. We spent the last few weeks seeing the first four solas are indeed biblical And I'm I'm suggesting that since they are true, then God gets all of the glory. Let me give you the biblical basis for sola dea gloria. God's glory alone. Isaiah 43 is talking about the scattered children of Israel. People of God of the Old Testament. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made God's creation of the Old Testament people is ultimately, he says, for his glory. Romans 11, the very end of his explanation of the gospel, Paul breaks out into doxology. He's been talking about the gospel. Then he talks about the children of Israel in chapters 9 to 11. But he he gets to the end of all of that and it's all the people, or excuse me, all the depth of the riches of 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor, who has given to him that it might be paid back to him. You haven't given anything to him. He doesn't owe you anything. That's why it's grace. For from him and through him and to him are all things. How much things? All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Gets to the end of his discussion on the glorious gospel, breaks out to praise for the God of glory. The gospel is all about his glory, you see. Ephesians 1 says the same thing of his New Testament people. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that he does this all, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So this predestination thing that everybody doesn't like that results in justification is to the end that, for the purpose that, we who hope in Christ will be to the praise of his glory. Because you see, from the beginning to the end, from predestination to justification to final salvation, is all of God to God be the glory alone. What about that question I asked a moment ago? What about our glorification? Didn't Paul write in Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Didn't Paul say that, Scott? Yes. And didn't he also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the very glory of God are, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory? Yes, Paul said that. So what does this mean? It simply means, this is incredible to think about, both now and in the ages to come, when we put off this sinful flesh, we are now and we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another and will reflect his glory the way those created in his image were supposed to do in the first place, putting aside all sin in this life now. And when this corruption will have put on incorruption, this mortality will have put on immortality, then we will glorify him fully as we ought and with him incredibly be glorified. To him be the glory alone. Stand for prayer. Father, on, on, the, on the surface of things, Without tying those prepositional phrases to justification, we can agree. I like grace. I like faith. I like God. I like the Bible. But, but when we tie it to justification, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we begin to realize this whole thing, this whole plan, this, this, this whole thing has all been about your glory from eternity past to eternity future. This has all been about you, not to us, but to your name, O Lord. 
not to us, but to your name be the glory. Father, would you, would you forgive us for thinking in any way that we contributed in any way to our salvation? Ephesians 2 even says that our faith is a gift from you such that this whole thing is a gift of your grace. We celebrate the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.